is a rolling bot. Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But she's our guest, journalist Helen Barrett. You've been down to the bottom with a bad man, babe, but you're back where you belong. Go get me my pistol, babe. Honey, I can't tell right from wrong. Baby, please stop crying. Stop crying. Stop crying. Baby, please stop crying. Stop crying. Stop crying. Baby, please stop crying. You know, I know the sun will always shine. So, baby, please stop crying because it's tearing up my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I'm completely intrigued as to why you chose that. I was looking yesterday at the Guinness Book of British Hit Singles, which I still refer to. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have a copy of that. Yeah, I certainly used to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, my copy is 20 years old, probably. And I hadn't realised it was actually Dylan's, probably his last big hit in the UK. Got to number 13 in mm-hmm. 1978. And everything since then, any chart success he's had since then, has been... Uh, reissues generally or the, the lower end of the chart so it was his last big sort of I suppose mainstream hit. and only in the UK right because it went nowhere it tanked in the States yeah yeah and I was about nine or ten when I heard it uh, so it came out in 1978 and it was just as my parents were getting divorced I grew up in Chester which is near Liverpool and my parents were getting divorced and all the adults around me were in turmoil. There was lots of shouting. There was lots of crying. There was, you know, there was, everything was very uncertain. A, a typical thing for a, a child to go through. And I used to listen to Radio City, which was the Liverpool commercial radio station. Incredibly influential. If you grew up around Liverpool, if you grew up in that area, you listened to Radio City because they were mm. kind of... It was commercial radio, but it was uh, it was quite edgy. It had presenters like Kenny Everett. It was quite progressive. And it was always interesting. They always played interesting stuff. But for some reason, they obviously had Baby Stop Crying on rotation. So two or three times an hour, this song would come on the radio. And this sort of grizzled man <laughs> imploring me to stop crying and imploring us to stop crying huh. and then and then he'd reach this fabulous punctuated bit at the end of the verses where you know the sun will always shine you know you know it's going to be all right with the glorious backing vocals of i think it's helena springs who was 17 at the time and yet she sounds no kidding so old I was reading about her yesterday. She she was born in 1961, so she was 17 when she did those backing vocals. Good Lord. And she was writing songs, of course, with Dylan. She helped him write songs, and I don't know if she's ever been written about or been given much credit for that, or even where she is now. She went on to do backing vocals for Bowie, the Pet Shop Boys. She was on West End Girls. And yet she sounds ancient in Baby Stop Crying. And I, and I love the way he changes the emphasis in the song. So he goes through that baby stop crying, baby stop crying routine sort of three times. And the first time the emphasis is on stop, baby stop crying, stop crying. And then in the second verse, he changes the emphasis to stop crying, stop crying. And it becomes, it's like he goes from something soothing to something you know, slightly desperate and imploring. And it's, he's, he's exasperated, it's, it's the exasperation comes through. And I just found it incredibly comforting when I was nine. But I didn't realise that it's actually considered quite a naff Dylan <laughs> song. I was reading um, 
Clinton Halen's book, and he describes it as a mawkish torch ballad. Um, really? And he but... describes Helena Spring as nubile, his nubile ballad. Yeah, right, of course. So, <laughs> But I mean, the interesting thing about Dylan in this instance, I think, is that he's, you know, shock horror, being kinder towards the woman than he had been in other songs. And also, if you go back to, I mean, this is not my discovery, but Michael Gray has pointed out that the roots of this are in Robert Johnson's Stop Breaking Down. Yeah. Uh, Sonny Bo Williamson does a song called Stop Crying as well. Yeah. And in both those songs, Kerry <laughs> and I were sort of emailing back about these the other day, and he was saying, yeah, they're both just saying, baby, please shut the fuck up. Yeah. They're not you know, saying please. They're, they're not saying, I'm worried about you, come here and shush, 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 everything will be all right. There's mentions of uh, of a pistol in both Johnson and Dylan's songs. In the Sonny Boy Williamson song, it's you'd better stop crying. You know, yeah. there's a threat. Whereas there's a degree of, I'm cautiously saying, empathy in Dylan's lyric. I was just reading Greil Marcus's new book the other day, and he said that the engine of all of his songs is empathy. And I thought, really? But then I, mm. we were thinking about this, and I thought, well, actually, maybe that is the case, because... Mm. He's more sympathetic and empathetic towards the other person in this song than either Robert Johnson or Sonny Boy Williamson were, I yeah. think. Yeah, I mean... I disagree with that. I just... I, this is such an interesting song because nobody has even come close to bringing this song up. And to me, I mean, I think the whole um, Street Legal album, which I, I, I like a lot more now than when we started this podcast. I've listened to it a lot more now, and I think I understand it. But I think that Dylan, as a, a few of our guests have said, was going through a particularly dark time when he made this album. He, he, he was getting divorced. He was getting divorced, right? exactly. So there's a meta thing going on, so maybe exactly. that's why it... Exactly. So he's, he's trying, I think, to be empathetic, but it's tearing up his mind. And I, I think yeah. a lot of it might might even hark back to just having young children. Yeah. Just baby, please <laughs> stop. You baby there, that little baby <laughs> yeah. has got to stop crying. Ba- but babies don't stop crying. <laughs> babies cry. That's yeah. what they do. I, I mean, there's something so gothic going on in this song. Who knows what the pistol and the river and the, yeah. but, you know, but I mean, the bad man, who is the bad man? Is it Dylan? Is it someone else? Has she left someone else to go to him? Has he changed, or is he claiming that he's changed? Does he? Why does he want the pistol? You know, I mean, it's there's it's a slice of American Gothic, which I don't think I real. I thought it was just a nice song about sort of stopping crying. What, he also <laughs> when when he when he says "baby, please stop crying" over and over again. To me, it sounds at least the first time I heard it. Anyway, I thought, God, this is it's like a baby crying. Yeah, it's just please, will yeah. you, Bob Dylan? Yeah, will you please stop crying? <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned the Robert. Johnson song because I was listening to that yesterday and it's got a woo in it he mm. and then I realised that Helena Springs backing vocals are echoing that yeah, yeah. it felt like a reference to yeah, it I'm sure that's right I, I think he does these things intentionally I also noticed on the front of Street Legal so my parents somehow managed to buy Street Legal in, when they were getting divorced <laughs> it didn't stop them buying Street Legal and we, we had it we had the album and I remember looking at the cover and thinking, he looks a shambles. You know? <laughs> but actually, looking at it again, he doesn't. He actually looks great. And you can see, I don't I don't know how deliberate it is, but there's a tan line on his hand where his <gasps> wedding ring oh, wow. was. So he's standing at the bottom of the steps. Mm-hmm. He's at uh, Rundown Studios, yeah. I think, or yeah. near Rundown Studios. It's supposed to be the, the, the steps the step. at the bottom of Rundown yeah. Studios, yeah. In Santa Monica. Yeah. And he's looking... Down there, and I remember, you know, it's an odd photograph in many ways. He's not looking at the camera. Why is he looking down the street? You know, but he's looking ahead. He's looking mm. up the street into the future, 
with the tan line where his wedding ring used to be. God. And he's looking sort of slim and confident. He's smiling a bit. He might be smiling a bit. It's actually a great cover. It's a very enigmatic image. It's great. And that wedding ring tan line is a detail I hadn't noticed before. Mm. No, nor me. No. Nor me. But it's a divorce song. It's a song about divorce. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, the the whole album is it's a yeah. divorce album, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it's it's also got a song that I have mentioned a few times, uh, with, uh, which is one of my favorite Dylan songs that people don't generally talk about, which is "No Time to Think." Yeah, which I just I never get tired of that particular song. There's I I think the the choruses make me laugh. I find myself you know my my favorite choruses socialism. Hypnotism, patriotism, materialism. <laughs> I just, <laughs> yeah. I just, and that's just that just happens to be four words yeah. out of the. I mean, who uses words as a chorus anyway? Yeah, and it's just it's it's wild. Yeah. Which one of your parents was the bigger fan, or when they were getting divorced, did they just still buy it together? <laughs> they they loved Dylan. My parents loved Dylan. We had a lot of records. For some reason, my parents never grew out of. They, they never put away childish things. They always loved pop music. They, well, my dad still does. My dad's still alive and he still loves pop music. It's a big part of his life. And we always had records. We always played records. Pop music was a big part of my life growing up. We always had the radio on. They were big Elvis fans. They were born at the start of the 1940s. And there's something about that generation, people who were born... In a brief period of time, probably from about 1940 to 1945, who were just completely beguiled by pop music. It did something mm. to them. I think McCartney is a good example of this. They sort of never grew out of it. It changed them somehow neurologically. And my parents, they were just the right age for rock and roll. They were sort of in their early teens. Buddy Holly, the Everly Brothers, mm. Elvis, you know, they, Little Richard, they always loved all these. And they... They always went to see live music as well. Anyone who came near Liverpool or Manchester, they would go to see. I remember being taken quite young to see J.D. Sumner and the Stamps. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I used wow. to get taken. I got, I, got, I got taken to a lot. Um, Pre-Elvis? Pre-Elvis, oh yeah. Oh, my God. They were touring. I remember them going to see Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, Little Rich. You know, they'd go and see all the old rock and rollers who mm. were still touring a lot in the 70s and 80s. So, so we had a lot of records in the house, and we we did have um, we had the free willing Bob Dylan. We had Bring It All Back Home. We had Bob Dylan and the band, which they used to play a lot, which was quite a quite an unusual one. I remember them buying Street Legal. Um, did they fight over who got to keep Street Legal? I think my dad kept most of the records, but they both loved Dylan, and Dylan's really been something akin to a foot to me in the sense that he's just always been there. I think it's very hard to divorce the visual imagery of the record sleeves from the music. To me, the two are absolutely symbiotic. You know, yeah. one decodes the other. And I spent a lot of time looking at record sleeves when I was a child. And my mum would sing Mr. Tambourine Man to me as a lullaby when I was really little, really little. And she sang it, she sang the whole thing all the way through. Wow. Not the birds version. It was no, the long all, all version, the, the Dylan version. <laughs> I, I think of it as starter Dylan, Mr. Tambourine Man and the Mighty Quinn and mm. you know those, those songs. She she would sing those songs to me. She didn't sing lullabies. She sang Dylan. So right from my sort of earliest consciousness, really, his lyrics have been there. And I didn't even know. You know, obviously I was an infant. I didn't know who he was, but I did 
form a sort of very strong visual sense of, you know, a visual attachment to to the lyrics, and in particular, Mr. Tambourine Man. And I assumed she was singing in the first person. So I, I, and I thought she'd made this song up, you know, right. <laughs> thought she'd written this up. <laughs> I just saw this thing as a sort of a tale of ships and diamond skies and uh, ragged clowns and, you know, amusing sort of childlike images, a sort of Pied Piper sort of image. But what I love about it is that the, the imagery is just out of reach. It just sort of keeps escaping. It's really elusive. You think you've got a handle on it and then it vanishes. It's surreal. It's just a shadow that you're seeing that he's chasing becomes how you experience the song. And then years later, my mum developed Alzheimer's. And with Alzheimer's, the person somehow just sort of slips from grasp. They slip out of view into the sort of foggy ruins of time. Their consciousness goes. And I remember years years later after a very sort of difficult and exhausting visit to her in her nursing home. Coming back to London, she was in a nursing home in North Wales, which is a long, long journey, and coming back on the train and finding... It was a cold January day, it was really foggy, finding my car, which I'd parked in Streatham, down this dark Streatham back street and getting in my car to drive home and put the radio on. And Dylan's Mr Tambourine Man came on. And I suddenly, I hadn't heard it for years, and I suddenly realised that it became a song about the experience. It articulated the experience of Alzheimer's, watching someone with Alzheimer's. It became a, it had a completely different meaning. And it, I was absolutely floored by this. So it shifted. And, but also what struck me is Dylan's delivery. He has a sort of a a sort of a ferocious implacability when he sings that song. He doesn't sing it sweetly. He doesn't sing it like the birds. He, he delivers that it's like a diatribe. And that's what Alzheimer's is like. It's ferocious. And so there was, there was a sort of an echo there as well. And so we played it at her funeral. And, <laughs> and my, I think my dad said, yeah, maybe we should play the birds version. So no, 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 I, I want the angry, long Dylan version that everyone's got to sit through it. So we played that. And um, yeah, so, so that is, I mean, it's an obvious Dylan song. Everybody knows it. Everybody's attached to it. But it, how it shifted in its meaning for me was, I suppose that is Dylan's appeal, that he can be anything and I think he says something about this in the interview with the Wall Street Journal that just appeared last night as we're recording right? yeah. yes so he's asked does the way you first hear a song matter do you think that has changed the relationship of the listener to the song and he says the relationship you have with the song can change over time you can outgrow it or it could come back to haunt you come back stronger in a different way a song could be like a nephew or a sister or a mother-in-law he says there's actually a song called Mother-in-Law. <laughs> so he, I wonder if he intends that or if that's something that he's just noticed about his songs and how people respond to them. I mean, I think that's absolutely true. I've, there are songs that I've heard many times in my life and then one day they made sense because of what I was going through at the time and I thought, oh, that's what this song is saying. And the clouds part and suddenly the truth of the song and your truth, like an eclipse, they kind of pass perfectly and they, and they blend and then that's that moment. Mm -hmm. And then that's what you hold on to Every time you ever hear that song ever mm. again, you know, you, you can remember 
those feelings that were stirred in you. And I think that's the fantastic thing about music. I'm not sure there's any other art form that, that does it quite as well. Mm, you know, it just brings it right. all into focus like that. And that's why I, I believe very, very strongly that, uh, you know, I, and I hope people like Dylan are modest enough to agree with this, that the work does not belong to them. They create it, they put it out into the world, but it belongs to the people that hear it. And it belongs to the people to whom it really, really matters. It's funny, I uh, wrote down a thing from that uh, interview, uh, which I've got in front of me here, which is about the same thing uh, that Dylan said. Uh, a great song mutates, makes quantum leaps, turns up again like the prodigal son. It crosses genres, could be punk rock, ragtime, folk rock, or zydeco, and can be played in a lot of different styles. Bobby Bland could do it, Gene and Eunice, so could Rod Stewart, even Gene Autry, Coltrane could do it, wordless. Yeah. But it, it made me think that, having read that interview uh, just last night, that a lot of it was, well, that section ends like this. This, to me, was pre-written, actually. He's either the most articulate person who ever lived, which he never used to be used to be in interviews, or it's pre-written. But I love this bit, which sounds pre-written to me. A great song touches you in secret places, strikes your innermost being, and sinks in. Hoagie Carmichael wrote great songs. So did Irving Berlin and Johnny Mercer. Some people you wish had written songs. J. Frank Doby, Teddy Roosevelt, Arthur Conan Doyle, people like that. They probably could have written great songs, but didn't. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's great, but is that spontaneous? Do people speak like that? No. I don't think so. <laughs> I thought it was like an outtake from philosophy yeah. of, of modern song, yeah. which is, there's nothing wrong with that, except it was presented as an interview. And I think, is this another one of these Bob Dylan put-ons? Mm. It's not really an interview. We know the guy who quote, interviewed him because he was on one of our early podcast guests. And so definitely he supplied questions, but I'm not sure that Bob Dylan was giving spontaneous answers, but that's fine because that stuff is great mm. and mm. it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's typical Bob Dylan. Yeah. I think it's all you need from Dylan. I mean, who are you interviewing anyway? You know, it's, it's difficult. He, I suspect he's probably uneditable and I suspect interviewing him or... I mean, as a journalist, I've interviewed lots of people and they often lay down conditions or try to lay down conditions or, you know, say what they will and won't talk about and, you know, all that sort of thing. All that has to be negotiated. I suspect with Dylan, it's, you know, off the scale, the sort of control he demands. And and I think, I think it was the New Yorker he said that he would do an interview with, but only if he could have the cover. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they don't do covers of, with pictures of people. So it, it, there's something willfully disregarding of editorial protocols, mm. which can just be hugely frustrating. I mean, if you want to interview someone and they do say, well, I'll, I will talk to you, but I won't talk about this or that. Sometimes you can think, well, OK, that's not really going to be the focus of the interview anyway, so I can disregard yeah. that. And that's fine. I can make that concession. But there, there are some times when you just sort of say, well, we can't do it then because... Mm. It's got to be meaningful for the reader, and I have to be able to ask you about anything that is that is relevant. And you know, certain things can't go unchallenged. I mean, the thing is, if I were interviewing Dylan, it's never going to happen. But if I, if I were interviewing Dylan, I would want to be able to ask him about the signed books. You know, I mean, yeah. someone needs to ask him about this. Yeah. Exactly. The statement he put out. Vertigo, looming deadline. Just, like, come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, he needs to be. I remember reading about it, uh, seeing these these books advertised, and thinking, 
But he's on tour. He's 81. How is he going to sign 900 books? I mean, it, yeah. it, the whole thing seemed impossible anyway. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, he was asked so many stupid questions yeah. when he was young yeah. that he's just given up on the opportunity to be asked yeah. anything, yeah. Uh, which is kind of a shame. But I, I mean, he's old. He's paid his dues. He yeah. deserves it. And a- as he mentioned in that interview, I kept thinking he does sound and he says, you know, I'm I'm tired. Yeah. Most of the time, I'm just and exhausted. And he's, he's always disregarded journalists. He's always had a, a, a sort of an arrogance and a, a sort of a, a willful kind of almost hostility towards them. Yeah, which not, is not almost. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> but, but that's Proper. exciting. And that can be exciting. Mm. You know, as, an, as an interviewer, that can be exciting. You know, if someone is, uh, you know, you don't know how they're going to be. I, I'd love to have interviewed Lou Reed, for example, or one of the sort of who's the most pugnacious? Who's the most pugnacious <laughs> person you've interviewed? Well, I, you know, I did interview Terry Hall last year, and he—I was expecting someone much more pugnacious. I mean, he is—he was a curmudgeon. He was, you know, with with good reason. But he was—he was not difficult. He would talk about anything. He was very, very angry about the Conservative Party, the state of Britain. He felt we were being dragged backwards. He felt racism was getting worse. He felt that he—I think he said something along the lines of a lot of what the specials were trying to achieve has just been obliterated. And, you know, what I loved about the specials was that they they were like a glimpse of what a different kind of post-colonial Britain could be like. Multiracial, creative, energetic, fun, belligerent, articulate, all those things that we seem to have squandered. And I think he felt that, I mean, he seemed to be saying that he was angry not at journalists he was angry about that so who was the most uncooperative oh, person i don't think anyone has been uncooperative. okay never interviewed van morrison then clearly <laughs> no but no. i have reviewed van morrison oh okay. so i reviewed for the ft one of his concerts straight after the pandemic he did a oh, wow. short run at dingwalls right and it was no billed, vaccine passports yeah well no it was billed as a COVID super spreader you know, the, the, event. This terrible album that he made in lockdown, which is absolutely unlistenable. I don't know if you listened to it. I listened to the single. Oh, God. Which was oh, this terrible. Is with Eric Clapton, I, I used to right? be a huge yeah. oh, God, fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fan. Yeah. Anyway, go on. And, yeah. and it was all sort of, you know, I hate my ex wife. And, you know, yeah. sort of, you know. Why are you on Facebook? Why are you on that, Facebook? That's right. Oh, you know, God. It's all coming back to me. And I thought, oh, God, you know. And they, and they sent mm. me to review this. And I thought, well, you know, the chance to see Van Morrison in a tiny venue. Mm. It'll probably be terrible. And he was brilliant. He played one song wow. from the Terrible Album and then he played The Canon. And <laughs> days like this, I mean, it, it was just extraordinary. He was beautiful. His voice was beautiful. He sounded fabulous. He was crowded onto the stage with this sort of massive band. People were in tears in the audience. I mean, I think there was only about 500 people in the audience. Mm. I love that you could never write these people off, Dylan, Matt no. Morrison. You just cannot, can you? Can't. You? you can't. You can't. You have to, you know, no matter how unpleasant they are or yeah. how uncooperative, difficult they've done what they've done. It's interesting. I wrote a piece for the FT five or six years ago about collecting punk memorabilia and the value of it. Because at that time, lots of punk memorabilia collections were coming up for auction in the big auction houses in London. And when paraphernalia ephemera comes up for auction, there's a peak moment where the people who lived through the excitement of 
whatever moment in popular culture it's about, mm. are at their wealthiest. <laughs> they, they can still remember it. But there comes a time when that slips away. So at that point, it was punk. And I would, I'm not sure, but I would imagine that a lot of hedge fund managers seven or eight years ago <laughs> in their 50s would have remembered the excitement of the Sex Pistols, had loads of money, and this was all sort of pushing up the value of this stuff. The, the value of these things was, was at their absolute peak. And I, I was talking to an expert from Sotheby's and I said, which acts 100 years from now will hold their value? The ephemera, the records... He said, well, there's two, the Beatles and Dylan. And I was thinking, you know, why is that? It's difficult to articulate why, but I think we know why. And I think if you can articulate why, then that's the sort of the key to understanding Dylan. People will be listening to him. People will care about him 100 years from now. Well, we've done 50, 60 years, haven't we, yeah. for both those artists? Yeah. And, and yet, but the people who grew up with him are still in living memory. Yeah, yeah. When they die, I mean, you can already see it with Elvis. He's yeah. slipping away from cultural relevance. That was partly what the Baz Luhrmann film. Mm. I know, and how was I, I mean, I, I, growing up, I, like you, was a huge Elvis fan, as were both my parents, and yeah. I never ever thought that that would be in doubt. No, the cultural but the, but the significance slipped away movie. for a while, didn't they? Uh, in, 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 I think the yes, the 80s, 80s were pretty 80s. pretty yeah. bleak for Beatles fans. I think oh. has well, I think Dylan has. I mean, not every you know, not everybody's these days has heard of Bob Dylan, or if they do, they just think he's some old geezer. Uh, so everybody can, I mean, there was one time when I was doing, I think I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but I, I was doing a radio play with, had quite a few young actors in it. And uh, at some point I made a reference to Mick Jagger. I said, you know, it's like, it's like if you were Mick Jagger. And uh, they said, uh, who's Mick Jagger? And then, they, <laughs> and then they said, wait, wait, no, I know. He's the guitarist in that band. Yeah. I said, what, the Rolling Stones? Yeah. <laughs> so they got everything wrong, and I, and I thought, well, how famous mm. do you have to be? I mean, who is the most famous person? Say, I mean, weirdly, people like Albert Einstein, I, I think, has had pretty good innings. Like, mm. a lot of people know who Albert Einstein mm. is. Mm -hmm. Maybe more people, you know, in their 20s know who Albert Einstein is than Mick Jagger. But it's the dust of history, isn't it? There's this present and there's the past. There are not tears of the past. To the next generation, they won't care that uh, somebody can be alive who will not remember the Beatles or not remember JFK because they're all together. Have you seen that, that Dick Cavett, I think it's Dick Cavett show, yeah. when, when he's got Gloria Swanson and Janis Joplin on the same show? Now, to successive generations, <laughs> they will not understand yeah. the cultural and temporal gulf that exists between those two figures because they're both just two dead people from the past. Yeah. But to our generation, we go, Jesus Christ, that's, that's two completely different worlds. Yeah. You know, time's very cruel like that. It just sort of chucks them all in, the, in one big old dustbin, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, it's like um, the Beatles meeting Marlene Dietrich, doesn't right. it? I mean, it's the same thing. And mm, seeing her yeah. as an old lady and, you know, yeah. Yeah, there's a picture of Dylan in the first few pages of Grill Marcus's new book with James Baldwin. Yeah. You know, and you yeah. think, is that the same Bob Dylan that, that is yeah. touring now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a lot of time. So yeah. I, I guess when people think, are they going to still be relevant in 100 years? It is astonishing to think that we've had nearly 60 more than 60 of, mm. of, of the Beatles and Dylan since then. Mm. I think it's a good time to talk about Dylan's, just a little bit about Dylan's style, which yeah. is actually how yeah. we came in contact with yeah. you, your FT article about Dylan's style, because I think it's uh, it's fascinating because his legacy is partially the, the style that he bequeathed through his, just the way he dressed, for one thing. Yeah. 
So I wrote that piece when Dylan was due to do his run of shows at the Palladium in October. And I write a lot about, I'm a cultural journalist, so I write about design, fashion, style, music, you know, a sort of range of stuff. Architecture. Architecture, I write about. To to me, I I find it difficult to separate these things. I I don't know why that is, but I think I sort of struggle to be just a fashion journalist or just a design journalist or, or whatever. I've always written quite broadly. I, I was on staff at the FT for a long time, so so I was sort of, you know, immersed in its sort of approach that, you know, you always have to have a business case for writing about a, a subject. And a lot of people are surprised that the FT does arts coverage if you are if you don't read the FT. So <laughs> the FT writing about Bob Dylan. But there, there, there is a big arts section in the FT. Mm. So I wrote about Dylan's uh, style. And the great thing about the editors there is that I can go to them and say, I really think we should write about this because this is really interesting. And they just kind of go, OK, if you think it's interesting, we'll, we'll go for it. Whereas with other publications, you might struggle a bit to convince people that, that readers are going to read this. But this piece really seemed to resonate. When I came to research it, I just sort of pitched it. I just thought, oh, he looks great. need to write about it. But when I came to research it, there's very little actually written about Dylan's sartorial style and I thought this is really strange because Dylan is so dissected and so examined and Mm. so why has no one written about his look and then somebody had mentioned his uh, Native American period in the 70s where he started wearing all this Native American paraphernalia like on the cover of Desire he's got that hat and 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 the jacket the jacket which Dennis Hopper gave to him oh really I read recently yeah yeah. Who used to live in Taos, so that sort of makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and, and I thought, that, you know, maybe this needs examining, and maybe we need to look at why Dylan suddenly changed his style in the 60s, and he went from this sort of earnest, scruffy, folky to this kind of crazy, surreal creation that he turned himself into. Mm. This was really interesting to me. And then I talked to Paul Gorman, the writer Paul Gorman, who is pretty much the only writer who writes well about pop music and fashion. What he doesn't know about pop music and fashion is not worth knowing. And he's also extremely good on the sort of the history of London and the history of style and and the history of street fashion. And Paul Gorman pointed out that that moment when Dylan changed himself, he ditched the, the sort of brown suede jacket and the cap and the Chelsea boots and he he became something well not the Chelsea boots he kept them but he he became a sort of a a surreal creation was the moment when he went electric and it was to announce that and I hadn't thought of that before but he was right and then I think Lucas you you said something else as well that he invented in fact you went further you crystallized it and you said because I quoted you in this article you said that he he invented the rock star look that Keith Richards I think so, yeah. copied him. You know, the, the Beatles copied him mm. with the caps and the, you know. Thing. Well, the Beatles copied him right from the start, though, didn't they? Because mm-hmm. that, that little cap that he had in his very first album, yeah. the next thing you yeah. knew later, <laughs> bef- <laughs> after wearing that, it. Lennon's yeah. wearing it. So but, that's but for Lennon right to do that, for Lennon to do that, I mean, the Beatles were, you know, they looked extraordinary when they were in Hamburg. The Astrid Kirchner photographs, yeah, yeah, yeah. as they show. So, so they'd already started with, that look a little bit. They clearly had an instinct for it. And yet, I mean, Lennon wasn't someone who was given to copying people.
people, I don't think. But he copied Dylan. He yeah. did copy that look. He was in awe of that look. It's 1965, mm. specifically, when you, where you, you get Dylan's music changes, the Beatles' music changes, the way that they all dress changes, yeah. and the photography of both of them changes. I, mean, I, yeah. I think of the, the cover of Bringing It All Back Home with yeah. that sort of distorted oh. fisheye lens effect yeah. that just says... You know, to go back to what you were saying about Mr. Tambourine Man, you're entering a dream world here. That's you know, it's all it's yeah. all happening together. And and you want to be part of that world. Yeah. So you look at that picture and, and uh, what he's saying is, I'm no longer this folky, I'm here in this sophisticated world, mm. in this sophisticated house with this beautiful woman, Sally Grossman, Grossman yeah. who is his manager's wife. You can't sit with us. <laughs> no. <laughs> Seems to me you know, they've got this look on their face which is utterly kind of yeah, you're not invited. Yeah, I, I, you're well, who are you? Right. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, Dylan, he's wearing, he's wearing cufflinks. Mm -hmm. You can see, you know, he's kind of showing off these cufflinks. So he's got this, what looks like an expensive shirt and cufflinks, which apparently were a present from, from Joan, Joan Baez. Baez, yes. yeah. Um, one of the other he's, amazing... he's now a man who wears cufflinks. You know? Yeah, one of the other amazing things is I've, I've got two grey cats and he's got a grey cat. Yeah. He has his arm rather, his hands rather gently around the cat's shall we say, neck, or at least on the cat's shoulders. Yeah. But you think, I know that cats don't sit still for photographs. Yeah. And you think, what hypnotism did yeah. Dylan exert on this cat? Yeah. Because if you have a very strong personality, yeah. you cats will obey you. Yeah. And I think that cat could have been there for like an hour just yeah. because it was Bob Dylan. Yeah. But I find that one of the most extraordinary, because it's so yeah. ephemeral having a yeah. cat on, you know, on your, uh, yeah. your knee like that. Like the Godfather yeah. Brando. Yeah. yeah. He says the same thing, doesn't he? The Godfather Brando. Good quote. But yeah. you, you know, I, I mean, when I was nine, I wanted to be Sally Grossman. In that photograph, she looks mm. extraordinary. And then when, when you do try to be, like I remember when I was, when I was, I must have been about 67, when finally polka dots percolated down to people so that you could actually buy yourself a polka dot shirt. I didn't buy myself a polka dot shirt, but my dad had been to Carnaby Street and came home and brought me a polka dot shirt, which I then wore to school, to junior high school in Winnipeg, Canada. And... Uh, <laughs> My image never recovered in that everybody was wearing, you know, like lumberjack shirts because yeah. that's where Neil Young, you know, yeah, was growing yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how he, you know, yeah. got his look was that was the, that's the Winnipeg look, yeah. you know, those, those check shirts, you know, and, yeah. and jeans and open, you know, because yeah. we don't wear anything on top because it's so cold and we're so dumb. But anyway, uh, I, so I wore a polka dot shirt on the first day of junior high school and I was nicknamed Joe Maud. They said, hey, Joe Maud, eh? which was a vicious insult. And I was called Joe Maud for the rest of my uh, junior high school days. I was, because was I was like trying to be Maud. Oh, I, I was see. trying to be cool. Oh, right. And that was not the right place to do that. <laughs> Yeah. And I was so glad when I got out of junior high school because then I could I could start wearing plaid again. Well, I did start wearing plaid yeah. again immediately, but I never recovered from the Joe Maud soubriquet. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, you know, Bob Dylan would have just gone on and did indeed go on and wear these, you know, like those polka dot shirts, they were out there. You know, yeah. the one he wore at Newport. Yeah. Just looking at it now, you think if somebody walked down the street now in Soho wearing a, you know, giant... Yeah. What do they poet you know sleeved. poet sleeved yeah. Byron-esque. Yeah. You know, if somebody walked down in, in Soho now looking like Bob Dylan did at Newport, they would still get stares. I think that's right. And Londoners are notoriously they they don't really pay attention to outlandish behaviour. Although 
What's interesting about that time, you, you often see pictures from the sort of the early 60s and you see young people walking around Dylan, the Beatles, wandering around the streets. And the generational shift is really obvious because there are often crowds of older people staring in yes. disbelief at these creatures who look like mm. they have just landed. I mean, you see it a bit in Get Back in the, the, the mm. sort of the street scenes where, when the Beatles are playing on the roof. My favourite picture that illustrates this perfectly is there's a picture of Sandy Shaw standing in a round window. It's in Fitzrovia. In fact, I had a boyfriend in the 90s that rented the same, had a, took a lease on the same shop. And it still has the round window. You can still go and see it. And uh, Sandy Shaw is there in the window. She's standing, sort of taking up this whole round thing. And the photograph is taken from inside the building, but outside on the street, you can see people in their 60s and 70s who are dressed like Edwardians yes. staring at her. And she's wearing this psychedelic mini dress and she looks incredible. You know, her legs go on forever. She just looks terrific. And, you know, the, you can see it's hard for us to imagine now but how unusual these people looked, how startling mm. it must have been to see people like Dylan or, you know, even Sandy Shaw or, you know, just wandering about. They must have looked utterly alien to people our age. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's a really easy and completely erroneous conclusion to jump to that everyone, you know, dressed like Austin yeah. Powers and ran they around, really you know, going groovy baby no. and all this. Yeah. I, a couple of years ago, no, you, more than that, five years ago, I worked on The Crown and they were talking about fashion and I think my episode was set in 67 or something and I was saying so you know should I have sideburns or whatever and they said no no look at what was trendy for kind of musicians and film stars and then you add 10 years for normal people well actually the upper classes oh, which is really really interesting really interesting because yes. if you look at those people and get back looking yeah. up at the roof my dad and my mum got married in 1969 and in both cases the sideburns are halfway down the ear <laughs> Look at Elvis Presley, yeah. there it is, chin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dwayne Allman, yeah. John yeah. Lennon. These yeah. are not normal people. No. Ten years later, <laughs> upper middle class people go, hey, I'm going to experiment with some sideburns. Yeah. That's how it filters through. And I thought, God, that's so accurate, actually. Yeah. Mm. It never happens like in the Austin Powers world. No. And then there's Dylan at the Isle of Wight. I remember I, we talked to, I think, Robin Hitchcock, who was there, uh, you know, wearing his seersucker suit. And everybody's got their sideburns, you know, down to their bottom of their, their chin. And Dylan shows up in this, you know, that's totally radical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, that's, the band are still looking like the band. Yeah, yeah. And then there's Dylan who looks like this kind of, I don't know, you know, that's the sort of thing your accountant might wear in yeah. the summertime yeah. in New York City in 1971. Yeah. But not Bob Dylan, the no. hippest man on the planet. But this is the thing about Dylan. The, the minute the, the fashion is established, he's moved, hasn't yeah. he? So you've got Keith Richards, you've got John Lennon wearing polka dot shirts. By the end of that year, yeah. Dylan stopped wearing polka dot shirts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's growing some facial hair and wearing, you know, a hat in, yeah. in upstate New York. Yeah. And then everyone's just it's, struggling to keep up with him. Yeah, I mean, it's so exciting. I mean, it was really important to me when I wrote the piece that I could talk to. So you need people with first-hand uh, memories to really bring a piece of writing alive. And so I spoke to Richard Young, the photographer. Well, he's now a sort of well-known celebrity photographer sort of in his 60s, I would imagine. But in 1965, he was a shop assistant and he served Bob Dylan at a shop on Old Compton Street called Sportique, which was run by a sort of fashion impresario, I suppose you'd call him, 
called John Michael Ingrams. So Richard Young was a photographer who went to school with Mark Bolan, or Mark Feld as he was then. Mm. And Feld's parents had a stall on Berwick Street Market. And Richard Young and uh, Mark Bolan used to come into Soho a lot when they were young teenagers. And Richard Young ended up working in Sportique, this boutique on Old Compton Street. I was trying to work out where it was, actually. It was Apparently, it was next to the Two Eyes Coffee Bar. And on the right-hand side, if you were looking at the old premises of the Two Eyes Coffee Bar, which is now Poppy's, the chip shop, mm-hmm. on the right is an Italian delicatessen. But to the left, it seems to be an extension of Poppy's. So I think it was probably one of the buildings that is now part of this sort of huge chip shop, but was then apparently the most elegant boutique and most forward-thinking boutique in London. And somehow Dylan found this. And Richard Young remembers serving Dylan in the shop when he was about 15. So he was a sales assistant. And uh, Dylan choosing this, he talks about Dylan choosing this purple suede jacket that had been made in France and that these things came in only occasionally. And when they did, they flew out the door because they were so incredibly elegant. And he still talks, he was describing this jacket to me and he he was still talking in raptures about it. You know how the pieces of clothing can stay with you and you remember them because they are extraordinary. And he sold Dylan one of these jackets by a French company. But I think at that point, so 1965, Carnaby Street was sort of almost almost over. It was starting to become what it is now, which was something very commercial, quite sort of fast fashion. Sportique was something very different. It was really sophisticated. It was full of beautiful clothes, unusual clothes. And Dylan knew to to seek that out. And he said in the same afternoon, he also sold Bob Neweth's orange and white T-shirt that he's wearing on the front cover of Highway 61 that you can just see. Uh, And he remembers selling him that. And I think, you know, it was actually quite radical to wear a T-shirt as outerwear in the mid-60s. I mean, you you know, you you can't... We think of these times as being, you know, very liberated, but actually these were quite unusual things to wear, extraordinary things to wear, really. Most people were very straight and had very few clothes um, and were very constrained by what they wore. Was Old Compton Street then... Because it's... I don't know when it evolved into... It's a very gay sort of... um, Yeah, Sportique sportique was, you know, it had a... A gay vibe. Yeah, and uh, John uh, Michael Ingram was gay. He was part of that scene in London at the time. Because that was also yeah. quite hip, wasn't it? It, it I mean, was. There was a lot of gay people who were who yeah. were the, the hippest people in town. Yeah. And and also, I think when when you were a pop star back then, Mick Jagger or the Beatles or Bob Dylan, you know that was a sort of a a world you could go to and come back from and take things from yeah. and discover a bunch of hippery yeah. that you know people who wouldn't go down Old Compton Street yeah. wouldn't wouldn't discover. That's right. It's interesting that it wasn't on Savile Row. Where, of course, later these these places did sort of start to spring up on Savile Row, um, the Apple Store, Tommy Nutter, you know, Edward Saxton, you know, that that's where they did they did emerge. But there it was Old Compton Street. I think it was quite short lived, boutique. On YouTube, there's a, a I think it's an outtake from Don't Look Back, and it's Dylan in Newcastle in the northeast of England. I don't know if you've seen this. I, I'm glad you brought this up because I was just thinking about this. Yes. Which, yeah. which one? I mean, I've seen some. But... So he's, he, oh, he's, is it when he's, he's standing outside the... clothes mm. yeah. in, in a boutique. Well, okay. in, I say boutique, it looks like a, a very 
quite traditional menswear shop with lots mm. of you know wooden drawers and you know it, mm. it, it seems quite clenched. He walks down some sort of back street, you know, with his entourage, and then he he, he bursts into this kind of clenched world of this boutique, and he's trying things on. He tries on a jacket. He's quite. He takes up a lot of space. I mean, he's. He's small, you know, you can see he's smaller than everybody else. He's wiry, but he takes up a lot of psychological space in the shop. The waves part for him Mm. and he's trying on this jacket and people are crowding around and he looks great in this jacket. And then they get out a tray of psychedelic ties. Yes. Which is what these things are doing in this. It's in black and white, right? It's in black and white, but you you have to imagine how purple they are and things. Yeah. Yeah, they're purple, they're pink. And he tries on these and he loves it. He's having fun. This is someone with acute visual sensibility. He knows what looks good. And he always has done. He doesn't choose clothes accidentally. He thinks about them very carefully. Andy Warhol, uh, in his diaries, and I looked this up because uh, I find it fascinating. Dylan pops up right the way through Andy Warhol's diaries. But Andy Warhol's had such a a good visual sense, a way of describing people and noticed all sorts of details. And so Andy Warhol writes about seeing Dylan on Live Aid when Jack Nicholson introduces Dylan and calls him transcendental. And Andy Warhol writes, but to me, Dylan was never really real. He was just mimicking real people and the amphetamine made it come out magic. With amphetamine, he could copy the right words and make it all sound right. But that boy never felt a thing. I just never bought it. <laughs> you know, so, so, so what? I think they really didn't like each other. They really they, didn't like each other. They they were in each other's yeah. orbit. But yeah, because uh, yeah, we we had um, sorry, who was the guy that we talked to who we didn't have on the show? Danny Fields. Danny Fields, who was one of he was in the Warhol yeah. camp. Yeah, and he said, yeah, Dylan just that Warhol kind of made his skin crawl. And actually, in the new, yeah. uh, in the book, in the Philosophy yeah. of Modern Song, yeah. there's a teeny little yeah. thing where he says, you know, oh, people, some people say, oh, well, I like this and I like that. And people will say, I don't like Andy Warhol. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting that he didn't choose, I like Andy Warhol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's, he's still... They're still putting the boot in. And yeah. uh, throughout the diaries, Warhol puts the boot in to Dylan. He, he sort of... he portrays him as petulant, a bit whiny, a bit of a construct. And it, it all seems to stem from the fact that Dylan was given a painting by Andy Warhol at some point in the early it 60s. He was proposing. It was proposing in those... Elvis. The Elvis. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dylan seems to have swapped this for a sofa. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and Andy Warhol finds out about this second hand and is just clearly furious about it decades later, can't let go can't resist putting the boot in time and time again. And, you know, it's just, it's hilarious. But he sees him as a visual construct as well. I think it would be interesting to know what Warhol would have made of the current Dylan aesthetic. Well, what do you make of the current Dylan aesthetic? I mean, because he's he's sort of, in the last 10 years or so, he's now, he's become this sort of gypsy cowboy person in in public, uh, on stage. I mean, what, what do you make of it? I think, I think Lucas, I, th- I think you said, I was thinking about this, I think you said that there is no roadmap for the older pop star. When they get to their 80s, what do they do? And I was thinking about his uh, Dylan's peers and how they're navigating this, and I can't think of anyone navigating it better than Dylan. Maybe Little Richard did. 
But Dylan seems to have conjured a whole new look and pulled it off and made it work in a way that none of the others have. Think about Jagger, Keith Richards, McCartney, Ringo. You know, they they look okay. They look fine. They look fit. They look healthy. They haven't got a look. They haven't got a look that you could point to and say, that is Dylan. And, you know, it's like he's had this fifth act that suits the music beautifully. If you think about Rough and Rowdy Ways and those monumental songs that he's managed to pull out in his 70s from somewhere, they are as good as anything he's ever written. And the look is as strong as any look he's ever had. And he's become a sort of a narrator, like a, like a ringmaster, like a... It's a little bit Clark Gable. It's showman. It looks respectable. It looks entertaining, but it, there's also a respectability to it. It's dignified. Dignified. That's the difference. Because yeah. w- when you listen to those people, like McCartney, like Mick Jagger, yeah. I thought they're so keen on looking still kind of youthful. Yeah. Like, we're, we're still not... Even though McCartney's now let his hair go grey... You, he you, should have done that a long time ago. I, yes. Yeah, the and burgundy hair was. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> but but Dylan says yes. I'm I'm old. I'm dignified. Yeah. I'm still Bob Dylan, yeah. and I'm still. I mean, who knows? He could show up in a clown outfit on the next tour if there is a next he, tour. He could, I mean, yeah. he he, 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 he has done. It. You know, at Rolling Thunder. I mean, mm. you know, the Marcel Marceau look was essentially a clown look, wasn't it? And. Uh, I think with Lou Reed as well, there's a lot of similarities there too. Lou Reed looked great, but he never really changed his look. Bowie always looked sensational, but his look became, even in old age, even when he was ill, you know, he looked sensational, but he, but his look was, you know, he just wore suits really. Dylan I saw in 2015 at the Royal Albert Hall and he was wearing spats. And I thought, I mean, he, he got away with it. You know, I mean, who wears spats for God's sake? But, you know, I mean... But he got away with it. They looked perfect. They, they, it's stagey, but it's dignified. I think maybe Warren Ellis does this quite well, but Warren Ellis is a generation younger than mm-hmm. Dylan. I don't know, Cher? Cher looks great. Um, I wonder if it's because he's stuck around so long, because 30 years ago, he didn't have class. He just yeah. looked a bit pasty yeah. in a hoodie yeah. with a couple of days of stubble, and he just thought, washed up rock star and it's almost like yeah. he had to get through that yeah. to become reborn from the love and theft era onwards yeah. where he's just classy yeah and he's got the sharp clothes yeah. and he's got the trim moustache or the cowboy yeah. hat or the spats i mean he had a bad 80s well he, who didn't? he had a but, yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> terrible generalization but yes he, well, I, actually rod stewart probably had a good 80s you know yeah, um, yeah. mccartney had lots of people 80s, had a good 80s yeah you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tina Turner had a fabulous 80s. But Dylan's bad 80s. Dan Ross had a good 80s. You yeah. know, I mean, they, you know, lots of his generation They were taking had a good up all 80s. the good stuff. Yeah. I think Dylan's bad 80s went from about 1987 to about 1995. Oh, yeah. And I think, I think he got through that period yeah. and then thought, actually, this is the new period now. This yeah. is the no roadmap era. This yeah. is when I can start to invent this stuff. Yeah. And as you're saying, the music that goes with all that yeah. is new and it stands alongside everything he's ever done. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when we saw him at the Palladium back in October, he was sharp as as attack and he was making up the rules there were, mm. there were no rules to adhere to yeah it was interesting when we saw him at the when we all saw him at the palladium i think we were all there the same night you know there he is in his finery 
completely hidden behind the piano. <laughs> you I, only got yeah, to see him the yeah. two or three times he stepped out. out. I thought that was so funny. But I, I wonder if he has difficulty, you know, with mobility, maybe. Perhaps he's slightly maybe. arthritic. I think there's an arthritis thing because of the, the fact that he stopped playing guitar. Yeah. But I thought yeah. he, he but I thought the fact that he still looked fabulous, yeah. even though he shuffled on in darkness. Yeah pretty much left in darkness, yeah. was only, we were only able to see what he was wearing yeah. for about 30 seconds, yeah. 60 seconds max. And still he looked absolutely fabulous. He, he, he looks, as somebody said, you never see him anything in anything baggy. He always wears something slim. Mm. He has slight embroidery, slight detail. Yeah. Was there a cummerbund there as I well? I, I, I was thinking it, the been. shirt was very tucked in. I thought that's a good way to, to <laughs> that is, hide that middle-aged spread. Yeah, Must remember that one. I, I mean, he looks... Well, he boxes, as we learned yeah. in the thing that dropped last night in the yeah, interview. Yeah, yeah. He still says he, that he still, you know, yeah. he still spars. And the staging of that show was terrific. I mean, it, I remember the curtain going up, and there the band all were. There was no coming on stage. It was like watching a musical box, mm. and it was lit beautifully with that orange lighting from below. It was like you were looking at some sort of magical circus show. And the Palladium suited it perfectly. Is It Rolling Bob, Talking Dylan is recorded back home in Studio 3 at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Roisin King and produced by Robin Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. I bought myself a herd of moose. One day she could call her own. She came out the very next day to see where they had flown. Now, I'm going down to Tennessee. Give me a truck or something. I'm gonna save my money and rip it up. <laughs>